Welcome to something to wrestle with. Something to wrestle with. Bruce Pritchard. Well, you know. That's not a rib. She pooted. <laughs> what a rip. No, you have a meme. There's no box of gimmicks. Rumor and innuendo. I don't deal in rumor and innuendo. It, it, it. Was he there? I was there. Say something I don't give a <laughs> shit. <laughs> I ain't scared of shit. I ain't scared of shit. Fuck him. Thank you, Bruce. I love you. Take you cheese. Double cheeseburger. You take the bread. Double cheese. Well, you know. And then double mayo. You know, it's called chicken salad. Double Hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, by God, I am absolutely fantabulous, if you can believe that. I can believe it, because we have had one hell of a week. It's no longer rumor and innuendo. Last week, we said that our debut episode of Something Else to Wrestle on the WWE Network was number one, but this week... Our boy Dave Meltzer confirmed that we were indeed number two behind a little show called WrestleMania, but I didn't really count that. So I'll take it. Number two behind WrestleMania. <laughs> Give me some of that. Uh, come on, man. But WrestleMania, really? Anybody watch that? I hear it's getting over. I mean, I, I know they were thinking about Colossal Tussle, but I'm glad they landed on WrestleMania. Yeah, well, if you're going to come in to second, come in second to anything, then by God, go ahead and come in second to WrestleMania. We are the number one original program on the network, by God. I feel like we're classifying it now when we say uh, episodic weekly, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so let's also do this, man. If you haven't already, check out our episode on the Mega Powers. Maybe you tuned in week one and you thought, man, something looks off with the video. I think we got a lot of that licked in week two. We looked better. We sounded better. And that's only going to continue to improve just as we suggested. And if you stayed to the end, you know that, uh, I really ain't scared of shit and we are not changing the show. We are going to make this entertaining for you. I also think we should thank, uh, maybe a special viewer that we had this week, right, Bruce? Well, you know, like we, we have quite a few people who listen to and view our shows all the time, but, uh, I got a really nice text today from uh, Wilt Brother, if you know what I'm talking about, who complimented the show, and he's a listener, he's a viewer, and a shout-out to the one and the only, the immortal Hulk Hogan, and thanks for uh, reaching out to us, man, and I hope we make you proud and continue to make you proud, as a matter of fact. Even, you know what, and I didn't I didn't tell you this one, you get a shout-out from Hulk Hogan, also got a shout-out from the Million Dollar Man as well, who called me yesterday to just tell me how great he thought the show was. And uh, we'll get some excitement built. And there was certainly a lot of excitement for Unforgiven 1998. As we're covering this, yesterday was the 20-year anniversary in Greensboro, North Carolina. It does 325,000 buys. And this is the very first Unforgiven pay-per-view, at least in name. Talk about the idea and why Unforgiven made sense from a naming standpoint. Well, Unforgiven, the initial pay-per-view was really being built around the undertaker Kane issue. And it was a personal issue with the brothers hating each other and the brothers finally colliding. And this was going to be an inferno match. First time anywhere kind of had an old West feel to it. in a lot of the promos and a lot of the artistic design, but Vince liked that name unforgiven. And it was more build towards the undertaker Kane than even the, uh, title match, which was Austin and dude love. 
And we saw the start of that storyline on the April 13th, 1998 edition of raw. That episode is available in our archives. So it happened 13 days prior to this. And this is the only time though, that, uh, an unforgiven pay-per-view would happen in April, uh, in all the future years, it was actually a September pay-per-view and this is done while it's still technically under the in your house pay-per-view umbrella. And it's the 21st one when and why, and what was the thinking and finally getting rid of that in your house name. I think that Vince felt the in your house pay-per-views after a while had a connotation of being less than a major pay-per-view and people didn't feel the urgency that this was a can't miss event. So he wanted to drop the in your house and just go to theme pay-per-views, whatever that name was. And later on we came up with, uh, whatever it was backlash after WrestleMania and different things. So he wanted to drop that in your house and just move to where everything was themed and everything had a name. And we kind of stuck to that for a while. I think this is the first time the scratch logo was used too. What can you tell us about that logo? <laughs> it's attitude. God damn it. Give me some attitude. You know how the scratch logo came to be Conrad. I'm interested. Okay. We used to, we had that block, uh, kind of the yellow and it was a very clean logo. And I was in a meeting with, it was a company, not a company wide meeting, but it was a department head meeting. And I remember scratching. I would always scribble on my pads and draw pictures and everything. And I'm scratching through the logo and I'm just tracing it out. And Vince goes, God damn, we need attitude. We need something like this. And he takes my paper and creative services took it literally of the scratch which all it was was a scratch logo. And I'm not saying that I, I designed that creative services came up with it, but it was from me basically destroying the logo on a scratch pad during a meeting with department heads and Vince kind of going off about having attitude and you got to get out there. I don't want clean, neat. I don't want to paint within the lines. And that's how the scratch logo came up. And they took it literally and they went out and they did it. And the scratch logo was born and he loved it. And he liked the little, he called the, you know what the red underline is called? No, it's not an underline. It's a scar. I love the scar. And Vince had a, um, God, what, what the hell was it? Uh, it wasn't his, his Denali. He had like, uh, uh, the, the Cadillac Escalade, but it was the truck version and it was black and it just had the red scar on each side of it painted on a nice little decal with the scar on there. Look cool as shit. It's a scar. Damn it. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Lots to talk about here. First of all, just to be clear, you're taking fucking credit for drawing the scratch logo. No creative services drew it. I'm taking credit for him seeing me scratching on it and painting outside of the lines and saying there, something like this. And use my scratch pad as an example. And secondly, Vince, yes, it's all mine. I, I did it all 100% by myself, bro. Um, bro. and Vince McMahon's riding around with fucking decals on his truck here in 1998. Oh dude, man. It was the, it was the red scar. It, it went all the way along the side of the truck. It looked cool as shit. Black with a red scar on it. Dude, it looked cool as shit. Sounds fucking corny as shit. Uh, let's talk about the momentum that the company's on at this time. The attitude era is in full swing here. Mr. McMahon is now officially a heel 
and he's feuding with the world champion stone cold, Steve Austin. You guys have just gotten incredible media coverage for WrestleMania 14 with Mike Tyson. And you've just turned the tide in the Monday night wars winning for the first time in 83 weeks. Talk about company morale here. I mean, cause 95 seems like the fucking depths of hell. And here you are in 1998, just setting the woods on fire. Well, let me correct you on one thing. He wasn't Mr. McMahon yet. He was still just Vince. And we were just introducing him as the owner and the actual owner of the WWE. So it was interesting listening to the commentary because as time progressed and the character developed, that he actually became Mr. McMahon on camera. Even during this, you know, Lawler's still calling him Vince. JR's calling him Vince. It wasn't that Mr. McMahon persona still hadn't developed because we were still didn't even realize what we had, even at this point. So it was developing, and all of a sudden, every time that Austin and Vince would go out there and cut promos back and forth, it's like, shit, this is over more than... <laughs> more than what we're trying to sell here. Let's talk about how much business has jumped here from 95 to 98. Your average attendance in 95 was 3,227 here in 98. It's 9,143. It's unbelievable. The gate back in 95, your average gate, 50,447 bucks here in 98, $152,480. They're only selling out. About 4.8% of the house shows. They're selling out 48.9% of the house shows here. Your average pay-per-view revenue is up too, but not nearly as much. 95, you still had some hardcores. You're doing 3.84 million on pay-per-view. Here, you're doing 5.45 in 98. Just phenomenal growth year over year, seemingly. But when you jump from 95 to 98, it's uh, it's got a rocket ship, man. And even from 97 where business was really uptaking, it's up 46% April to April. As far as attendance goes, your gate, it's up 72% from April to April. Uh, your television rating also goes up April to April from a 1.7 to a 2.7 really phenomenal growth here. Just year over year. If you had to sort of contribute it to one thing. Is there one thing or is it just a collection of a lot of right things at the right time? It is a collection of a lot of right things at the right time. But if you only had to pinpoint it to one, I would say competition. And the fact that WCW was coming after us hot and heavy, they were providing a product that people were interested in and more so than us made us get off our ass and create something better. So thank you for the competition because it, to me, that's what really made the difference. Phenomenal growth. I mean, phenomenal growth. Now something comes out here in the observer. I've always wanted to ask about, it says Victor Quinones and Bruce Pritchard will be in charge of the WWF Latino project. What's up with that? We were really going after, obviously, the Hispanic market, which always seems to be the buzz thing going on. We had just inked a deal with Univision, which is uh, NBC Universal's Hispanic station, and Univision was the biggest Latino television station in the world, really. Um, and we were going to be doing a Sunday morning television show for Univision, but they didn't want 
just the WWE product repackaged with a Spanish announce team or anything like that. They wanted a Latino product. They wanted Latino stars. They wanted Latino announcers that were specific to that show only. So uh, we had, I pretty much was put in charge of it. Victor helped me out as far as acquiring a lot of the talent from Mexico and Puerto Rico, which is where we drew the majority of them from. And it was called Los Super Astros. We, you know, you, you talk about making a dent in ratings. We increased the rating in that time slot, which was 11 to noon on Sunday mornings, 10 times the rating that they had gotten previous to that. Um, but in the end, it still wasn't... Um, how did they put it to us? It was it wasn't Latino enough for them. Everyone on it was Latino. Uh, there were there were no, I mean we had we had no Anglo talent on it at all. But they Univision had this viewpoint of if they speak Spanish, they have to speak true Spanish, and they couldn't speak Puerto Rican Spanish or Mexican Spanish. It was crazy, but it was Los Super Astros. Let's talk about the. Uh the show after WrestleMania 14, you know, WrestleMania Monday. And I think that's probably really the first time it became a thing, at least in my opinion, is after WrestleMania 14, what was going on that day in meetings? Can you sort of take us back to that day in March of 1998? How was Vince feeling coming off of a big WrestleMania? It's obviously going to be a big night, lots of angles and whatnot, but there's arguably a lot of stuff to sort of take in here you know i mean you've got a new champion sean michaels is out six is in it's going to be a big night for the outlaws lots of stuff going on here what's the the mood what's the temperature it's a brand new day in a brand new company and this is the first day of the rest of our lives in a lot of respects so the the old was the old and out with the old and in with the new we were looking at the future and we weren't dwelling on anything from the past it's funny because you finish up on such a high with WrestleMania and for a lot of people that don't have to go and do TV the next day, they go to the party from WrestleMania, everybody's party and having a good time drinking till all hours of the night. Cause they don't have to go to work the next day. We couldn't do that. Yes, we did, but we had to show up to work the next day and perform. So it was, it was a day of new beginnings and it was such a high. That show was just such a high. It was a damn good show, and I think everybody was excited for the future. Well, I know everybody's excited to talk about this show. I mean, we know that um, the show goes down Albany, New York. It's a sellout, 11,202 fans paying over 156,000 in tickets and 81 grand in change in merchandise. And Raw starts with Vince McMahon coming out with a new WWF title belt. Of course, he's booed. The crowd's very loud. And Vince is doing a mic check and he can't hear himself talking. What's that sound like in the back when people realize, oh shit. Well, first of all, he was working. So <laughs> we all, we all knew it. Here's the best part of it. The fact that you even bring that up, the audio guy and, uh, his name was Abby, who was at the gorilla position with me. We had an audio guy there is shitting his pants. Because he's like, I hear him. It's coming through. It's coming through. I, I can hear him. Everything's good. But Vince, God damn it. What the, what the hell? What the hell? And he was working. 
So that it's good that you asked that all these years later, you remember that it actually got the audio guy. Austin came out to a huge pop gigantic. He gets in the ring, takes the new belt and, uh, then throws down the other one. It's sort of the end of maybe my famous or my favorite belt ever. The winged Eagle title belt. Uh, was this sort of, a always the symbolic plan to usher in a new era, new champion, new beginning, new belt. Yes. And it was with Steve, the new champion was going to get a new championship belt to go along with it. Change everything. Uh, Vince congratulates Austin on his victory and then says he'd like to clear up any misinterpretations about what he said of Austin winning the WWF championship a week ago. He says he's proud of Austin's accomplishment and proud to have him as being the face of the WWF. But together with his vision, Austin could one day become the greatest champion of all time. And Austin says, cut the BS. He knows Vince hates him and that's okay because he hates Vince as well. There will be no us because what you see is what you get. And Vince responds and saying he's incapable of hating people. I was waiting on you to laugh here and finds Austin to be a swell (laughs) guy. He even tells Austin he loves him and he goes out of his way to say, let's not ruin this moment. And then Austin threatens to beat him up. And, uh, these guys are going back and forth and it certainly feels like at this point it's set. We know that this is going to be the next big feud. Vince says the infamous line, we can do things the easy way or the hard way. And Austin wants him to clarify what that means. And he says the easy way would be for Austin to simply adapt McMahon's way. And the hard way will be Vince forcing Austin to adapt his way. And he tells Austin he'll be forced into doing it his way. Austin asks for 10 seconds to think about it and then kicks him and stunners him. Another huge pop, pretty iconic segment here. And it really kicks off this new Austin McMahon era. Tell me about the planning of this. How much of this was ad libbed out there? When did you guys know that Vince and Austin just had it together? Right about this time. And we had been putting Vince out there to use him as a tool to get Mick Foley over and help get over the characters of Mick and get that storyline going and use Vince kind of as is the feeder, but not to be the focal point of the issue with Austin. It was just using him as a device to, to help get Mick over and those personalities. But when they're out there and you're listening to this and they're just, man, they're feeling it and they're completely, there really wasn't a script. There was an outline, but when they're going off of it and it's, it's magic and you can feel it, it's just a buzz in the air that you went, Oh shit, man, this is something special. And you're thinking, God, if only Vince were a worker, if only we could ever get a match out of him. Could you imagine how big that would be? That'll never happen. Later in the show, McMahon has Austin arrested and is carted away in handcuffs and uses his one phone call to call Jim Ross on the air, which is awesome. Uh, Later in the show, Vince Vince comes back out and he says that uh, he figured Austin needed 24 hours to cool down. But Austin made his choice and Vince made his. And with that, Vince drops the mic and walks out. And Meltzer wrote that McMahon... Quote, spoofing his dressing room altercation with Bret Hart came out and insincerely told the fans that he felt he owed them an explanation. Does that even, I mean, that never even crossed my mind when I watched this. 
Well, no, because, uh, you know, those people always want to look at everything as a conspiracy theorist. It was a storyline and it was a way just to get more heat on Austin and more heat on on Vince and trying to get where we wanted to go and just have that rivalry a little bit at this point. But it was it worked, man. It was good shit. People were buying it. And when you listen to the reaction that Vince gets when he steps one foot out from that curtain, God damn, he was hot. Talk, talk to me about the arrest angle. Who came up with that idea and who were the cops? Those were uh, rental cops that you get from rental cops are us. You know, it's funny because we would always have to specify in the run sheets a lot of times whether we were actually going to use real cops or if we were going to use rent cops. And there was a distinct way in how you actually got real cops to work with you and then how you would just use rent cops if they had to take bumps and stuff. Nobody's taking a bump, you use real cops. Ken Shamrock and Steve Blackman beat Ru- uh, Rock and Farouk on this show. And after the match, of course, Rock and Farouk get into it. And the rest of the nation actually attacks Farouk, therefore kicking him out of the nation and making the Rock the new leader. I think you can argue that this is really when the Rock started to come into his own here. How did uh, Farouk feel about being kicked out of his own stable here? I think that... God, Ron was kind of looking forward to it a little bit because it was now an opportunity for Ron to be a babyface and out on his own again. He also saw Rock as this new upcoming star and thought that it would be a hell of an opportunity to work with Rock and get Rocky ready for his next chapter. So I think Ron was happy about it. Ron, when he came in originally, wasn't looking for more than two years anyway. (laughs) My, how that changed. But it was an opportunity for him to kind of go out as a baby face and have a nice run on his way out. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Next up, we see Triple H and China come out and they bring out the returning Sean yes. Waltman. And, uh, Oh, are we not allowed to say China? Why? I don't know. You said yes when I said it. Oh, because you mentioned Triple H's name, which just made me happy. Oh, hey, Hunter. Oh, he's not listening. He only watches. (laughs) They all listen. Uh, Ross referred to him as the kid on commentary. And he'd, of course, later go by X-Pac. But he wanted Six-Pac. And apparently the WWF suing WCW for supposedly stealing characters and licenses created by Titan that were almost exactly the same name worked against them here and they decide not to do that. So X-Pac is the name. He got some pretty strong shoot style promo on WCW here saying Hogan sucks and something like you better not stop short or Eric Bischoff would be so far up your ass. You know what you had for breakfast. And he insinuates that Hall and Nash are being held hostage or else they'd be right here with us. Uh, what did you plan of this script before it goes out there? Probably. I mean, I guess I should say without question, Sean Waltman's most famous promo ever. I'd say that a lot of it was written in conjunction with Vince Russo and Russo knew a lot of what he was going to say. The idea behind it was to be edgy, to be real, say those things that nobody expects you to say. And when 
Sean was coming in and we were trying to come up with names for him. Uh, the reason Jr. referred to him as kid, because for a long time, that's was going to be his name coming back and just be the kid. And eventually they ended up on X-Pac from DX and from Six-Pac. And that's how he came up with X-Pac from there. But our working name with, with us was the kid. Uh, Meltzer would write Waltman fired three weeks earlier by WCW as a pawn in the tension between his friends, Hall and Nash and the WCW power base of Hogan and Bischoff agreed to terms about one week before his WWF debut for a four-year contract with a maximum of 15 working dates per month and a downside guarantee of 300 to 350,000 per year, a solid race, a solid raise from the 250 he'd been earning with WCW on a contract that still had about 18 months remaining. Apparently Waltman opened these negotiations with Jim Ross and Ed Kaufman at the WWF almost immediately after receiving his surprise FedEx termination sent by Nick Lambros of WCW to his house in Minneapolis, where he was at the time recuperating from a broken neck. The firing was such a spur of the moment deal that later that same evening, the announcers who weren't even aware of what was going on were still plugging him for public appearances for first day on sale dates that weekend. The original offer allegedly would have been a huge cut from his WCW salary and was only about half of the offer that they come back with. And that first offer sent a clear message to many in WCW that were unhappy about their positions that while they could jump and go to the WWF, they'd be guaranteed a lot less money and more dates to do so. Bischoff indicated to Nash he'd be willing to rehire Waltman but over that two week period after termination, not one member of the WCW office ever contacted him with the apparent belief that he needed to call them. Waltman was naturally bitter about the company and Bischoff in particular's treatment of him. Since this came on the heels of several months earlier where Bischoff had fired him and he'd been known to, uh, tease firings to get people's attention. And being told to sort of tone down his act with the crotch chopping and Bronco riding as WCW was trying to distance itself from the more vulgar WWF. His attorney at the time is Barry Bloom, and he still had a tenuous relationship with the WWF going back to the Jesse Ventura lawsuit. And he steered Waltman towards Elliot Pollock to handle the deal. And as time went on, the WWF drastically changed its offer and both sides came to an agreement on March 23rd for a March 30th start. So he signed the contract the Monday before WrestleMania started the Monday after WrestleMania and Meltzer sort of freestyles that a lot of this may have been because he changed attorneys. Is that true? Did Vince sort of have a hard on for Barry Bloom during this time and was just going to be a bastard to deal with as a result? No. And Vince wasn't doing the dealing. It was Jim Ross and Barry was where Barry got himself in, into a predicament with the company was Barry represented people on both sides. So like Barry represented Goldberg, Barry represented a lot of those guys and he would work both sides against the middle. He was also representing Eric Bischoff at the time, I believe. So when you're representing the guy that's doing the hiring and you're representing the guys that he's hiring, it was a bit of a conflict of interest, and he and Jr. did not get along. He happens to be Jr.'s agent now, just for the record, as well as Chris Jericho, Mick Foley's, and a few others. And through the years, 
we've actually had a pretty good relationship with Barry. But at this time, to say it was strained would probably be an understatement because of the tenuous situation with WCW. So Elliot Pollock was also uh, Brian Pillman's attorney. We had had some experience with Elliot. But Elliot, we, we knew. I mean, everybody, it was it's an incestuous business. And everybody's cross-pollinating somewhere. So we knew everybody was talking. And the thing about it is there were guys, for example, The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin, a lot of guys that had their downside guarantees that were making five, six, seven times what their downside guarantee was. It becomes a mute point. However, for budgeting purposes and where it's going to be, your downside guarantee is what it is. And a lot of guys didn't understand that, that had been under the WCW guaranteed money, whether you work or not. And here it was, if you work, you make money. If you don't work, eh, you're not going to make a lot of money. In the main event, we see the new age outlaws beat cactus Jack and Terry Funk in a cage to regain their tag team titles. But what we all remember is at the end, we see triple H X-Pac and China come out and attack Funk and Jack. And now a new DX is formed. Of course, famously triple H and Sean Waltman were already great friends and a part of the original click. So it makes sense for them to be in the new DX, but why was it decided to put the outlaws in allegedly even Sean knew they were coming in. How did that come to be? And if you want the full story on the outlaws, of course, that's available in the archives at something to wrestle.com. Well, the credit goes back to Sean Michaels and goes back to Sean Michaels from several months prior to this taking place where Sean really wanted the outlaws to be a part of DX. And he thought that, you know, they were young, they were a good tag team and thought they'd make a good fit with DX. So that seed had already been planted. Vince just didn't want to do anything until after WrestleMania, you're losing Sean. And now DX all of a sudden has three new members in the outlaws and X-Pac. So it was to make it new and reborn after mania. Let me ask this. Is this the best version of DX to you where you've got the outlaws, Waltman, China, and Hunter, or do you prefer the original Sean Hunter, China? I think they both have their merit because the, and P, that's funny because people a lot of times forget about the original version of DX, which was really just four people. Yeah. If you can't recruit, it was, it's four people. Right. And, and to me, that was what changed everything in a lot of respects. And, and DX was red hot at the time and it was cutting edge. However, more people, I think, witness this version of DX and kind of look at it as, I guess, the original DX. So I think they were both equally good and, and served their own purposes in their time. Raw did a 3.8 that night and Nitro did a 4.2. The night after WrestleMania, you're on such a high. Are you somewhat disappointed that you don't win the ratings war? No, we're selling out and business is good. It's on the upswing and it was a matter of time. The ratings ratings war because we were selling advertising. People were recognizing what we were doing. At that point, Vince was like, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna continue with my nose down. It didn't bother him as much. On April 4th, you guys did the mayhem in Manchester pay-per-view. It draws 18,514 fans paying 518 grand. Lots of stuff on here worth talking about, but we're going to skip to these two things. Austin pinned Helmsley in his first title defense and what was said to be very good with an unreal pop. And then China got a stunner after 
but maybe the story of the show is what Meltzer writes here. The show ended on a real downer. Undertaker's ring outfit was also missing in transit. So he went out in the street clothes against Kane. They threw some lame punches and got in the ring when they blew one attempt at a spot. And then the undertaker simply tombstoned and pinned him in three minutes and 30 seconds. This was said to have been worse than any match on nitro raw or pay-per-view this year. So you can imagine what all that takes in. What do you remember about the undertaker having to fight here in street clothes? Well, I, that's Dave Meltzer's accounting of it, and I'm sure I can find a whole hell of a lot of worse matches than that. But The Undertaker uh, had to check his stuff, and his stuff didn't make it. Normally, The Undertaker at TVs and for pay-per-views, he has his own crate and his own box that travels with all the TV gear and, and travels with everybody. Because it was in the UK, it didn't make it. So his gear getting there, it's, it's where's my stuff, it was supposed to be with all of the TV gear and everything else. It didn't make it. So we had to improvise with that on his gear and he went out in street clothes, not the best presentation in the world, but, um, short and sweet and let's go home. Let's go to the April 6th raw. It was actually taped on March 31st in Syracuse, smaller building, but it does sell out 5,559 fans, $86,408 at the gate. But check this out, $43,488 in merchandise. Pretty good. The show starts with Mr. McMahon front and center, and he's giving us all an update on the status of Stone Cold Steve Austin. He tells us that Steve was released from jail the very same night as his arrest. And since last Monday, he feels like Austin has learned his lesson, and he learned it the hard way. He's no longer going to be the beer-swilling, trash-talking, blue-collar Stone Cold Vince now wants us to have a WWF champion we can be proud of, and we're going to see a new and improved Stone Cold Steve Austin, and he guarantees it, or the Syracuse crowd will get their money back. And the crowd is on fire early here. What do you remember about this promo? Well, just during this time, everything that we were doing that kind of centered around Steve they were eating it up. I mean, you were just, it was like spoon feeding a baby, a hungry baby or a hungry dog. They, they were eating up everything that we were feeding them. And it was an electric, an electric time. Uh, we also see a skit here where DX is walking around backstage and they come across the disciple of apocalypse motorcycles. What do you suppose happens next? Tinkle, tinkle, piss, piss pee on them damn bikes and as a matter of fact the urine which it was hollywood urine by the way and richie posner created the urine and it had to have a certain tint to it god damn it it's gotta look like piss and so it actually looked like piss tinkle tinkle piss piss uh, cactus jack comes to the ring cuts a great promo and he talks about how when he and funk were getting beat up last week the fans were chanting for austin and he said, you won't be seeing Cactus Jack for a while. And he leaves. Then we see the nation of domination attack Farouk in the parking lot. Eventually Owen beats the rock by DQ when China hits Owen with a baseball bat. And now McMahon comes out to the ring with two policemen to reveal the new and improved WWF world champion, Stone Cold Steve Austin. Austin comes out wearing a suit and an Austin hat. And he's got his wrestling boots on. And this gets some booze from the crowd. And Austin goes and does his four corners pose and Vince signals for him to not do that. And Vince takes off Austin's hat and throws it in the crowd because it doesn't go with the suit. And, uh, this is maybe one of the most iconic segments in history. 
Eventually, of course, we see Austin ask one of the policemen to take his picture. And then he says, that's the last time you're ever going to see me do this shit. And, uh, threatens to stick the camera up his ass says he's a redneck from South Texas. He's not changing for anybody. And he strips down to reveal he's got his black tights, his stone cold, Steve Austin shirt with all the sleeves cut out and, um, ask Vince to bow down and then slaps him in the weenie. I need you to, uh, talk me through this segment, arguably one of the top handful of moments in stone cold's 1998. It's iconic because it just laid out the rest the pretty much the next, what, three, four years of the Austin McMahon saga that starts right here. And it was perfect. Vince trying to mold Austin people. God, they ate it up. And the best part about it to me, and you touched on a little bit, is when Steve came out in the suit without saying a word, the audience reacted negatively. Yep. Because he was conforming. And they're like, why, Steve? Why? It's almost like when you and I went on the network and quit saying fucking fuck. We did say fuck. Well, we We just got it bladed. You know, that's the first time I've bladed before. Well, they bladed for you. Yeah. It's the first, first time you've time. been bladed. Yeah. It was my first time. I can't now this week I censored myself and I said effed up because I know like they're going to blade me and I don't want that. I like this. So F oh, yeah. well, uh, you mother, er. no, we're not doing that shit here. You need to say it here. Let them ride. Well, then fuck you motherfucker. Thank you. I didn't mean to cut you off. Continue with your story here about, um, Steve. Well, no, it, it was iconic because everything about it, in my opinion, worked everything laying out the psychology of it with Steve coming out in that suit, custom made tailor made and look, by the way, looked great in the damn thing, but the audience ate it up hook, line and sinker. And we were off to the races. We also see an undertaker interview here. Uh, where Kane and Paul bear are on the screen, supposedly at the parents' grave site and Kane destroys the headstones and sets the graves on fire. Burn in hell undertaker burn in hell with your mommy and your daddy. When I was in there porking your mommy from behind, I remember you came in and Kane and I gave him a little wink. I love you. you know, we actually that. did a promo like that. Doing it from behind was actually part of the deal. <laughs> yeah. And it, it kind of got edited a little bit. Well, yeah, I would imagine. Um, well, it, it, it comes from, it comes from a famous story about, uh, a guy, a wrestler who was making love to a woman and her three-year-old son came into the room and saw him making love to her hmm. from behind. And the wrestler just looked at the kid and winked and said, <laughs> it'll be okay. No, no, no. Mm-mm. And the kid start was like, oh, mommy, no. And that's where the line <laughs> came from. And I put it in and tried to tried to put it out there, but no, it was no, Mm-mm. it was you're, crazy. You're going to tell us who did that. I can't. Yes, you can. 
I can't. No, I gotta have it. No, because Brian Pill will be bad. Well, he he's not here to defend it. Oh, I, I see what you did there. I feel like right now would be a good time for us to maybe figure out how we could send some flowers and do it on the cheap because I'm on a budget, but I still need the Pillman family to know that we're sorry for that big reveal. And, uh, well, well, this was, this was like many, many, this, this was even before he was married, man, long, long time ago. And back, you know, he was showing love to, to a mom, a mother. All right. So let's talk about, uh, this setting shit on fire is of course the idea to set up the inferno match at the pay-per-view. And I can't wait to talk about that in a little bit, but I'm going to hold off for now. Uh, the main event was triple H and the outlaws beating the DOA with triple H pin change with a pedigree surprise. Raw did a 4.4 nitro did a 4.6. So you guys are catching up a little bit. Next up is April 13th. We covered that in long form in our archives. We got more than you can shake a stick at there. Go watch along with us right now. It's something to wrestle.com and find our April 13th, 1998 episode. Let's go to April 20th. This is going to be taped on April 14th in Nassau. It draws a sellout 10,736 bucks or fans paying 245,000 bucks. I'll get it right. There's a love shack set positioned at the top of the ramp and it's for dude love. And this is the first time we've seen this. It's complete with inflatable chairs and a lava lamp. And the background is a cutout of a giant psychedelic school bus. And this is sort of fun that we're getting an opportunity to see this because this is literally one week after dude love turned heel. This is straight from the sixties here. This set, uh, where did you guys get all this stuff? Whose idea was it? Chat me up about the love shack. Well, we got it from lava lamps are us. And this was one of Vince Russo's idea. The whole, the dude love idea was born from a conversation in Toronto, Canada with Mick Foley and Shawn Michaels. And they were talking after a match and Mick Foley said something along the lines of, you know, Sean, when I was breaking into the business, I always wanted to be somebody like you. And he's like, what? He goes, yeah, I wanted to be that good looking baby face with the long hair, long blonde hair. And, you know, I even did it. I had this video me and my friend did, and I called myself dude love. And I begged Mick for that tape and I got the tape of dude love. We showed it. And then dude love was born from there. Vince loved it and he was born, but it was such a great character. And the idea to do the, the dude love shack, so to speak, was uh, Russo's idea. McMahon interrupts to let the dude know how upset he is that Vince had Austin with one arm tied behind his back and he could have beat the crap out of him, but the dude ruined the moment. And now he's going to be fined $5,000 and he tells dude love to never interfere in his business again and leaves dude talks some more and eventually announces he'll be facing Austin at unforgiven. We touched on this briefly on the April 13th episode, but remind us here. Why was Mick Foley's dude love character, the right guy for Austin one month after he wins the belt? I think because it was just so anti Austin and it was everything that Steve wasn't. We'd done mankind cactus. Jack had just been there and dude love was just so antithesis to the stone cold character. It was in my opinion, a natural next up. We see, um, DX watching themselves piss on the DOA bikes. 
and gun tells triple H to show his thing and piss on the crowd. And of course we see DX come to the ring. Triple H is wearing a raincoat. They cut a promo and, um, then he pulls out a big super soaker water gun and sprays the crowd. Who booked this shit, bro, bro. What if we took our penises out and we pee on everybody? I love it. Um, then you finally get to super soakers from there. Austin. Yes. They'll soak them superly. <laughs> Took a little explaining. <laughs> Explain to No, no, it's actually, it's actually a, a gun with water. Yes. And it'll be urine flavored water. Flavor urine flavored. You mean piss? Yeah. It tastes like piss. Yeah. <sighs> hmm. It's almost like the free birds were back there. Austin starts the second ding, ding, ding. hour and, uh, he brings his belt back out of course. And he's talking about a conspiracy between McMahon and dude love. And he promises to get to Vince by the end of the show. We see triple H and the outlaws beat Owen and LOD. Cause why wouldn't we? And then Kane and Paul Bearer come out with caskets and they set the casket of the undertaker's father on fire. And then the undertaker comes out for the save, but Kane choke slams him into his mother's casket. And they show close-ups of rotten bones and worms all over the place. Bruce, what the fuck are we doing right now? I don't, I don't understand the question, Conrad. If you have an old casket and they've been in the ground for a while, I'm going to give you, I'm going to tell you what happens. Bodies decompose and you have bur- uh, bones and worms. It's all that's left. I'm sorry, but that's, it's just life. And it, it is teaching kids a lesson here. That that air suction thing doesn't work all the time on the caskets. And sometimes the worms and all that shit get inside. Mm. Then we see dude love and Steve Blackman in the main event. Vince joins them from commentary and he guarantees something catastrophic will happen Sunday at unforgiven. And he's basically trying to paint the picture that he'd do to Austin. What he did to Bret Hart, even to the point of talking about wanting Earl Hebner to be the referee. The bell rings out of nowhere with dude having an abdominal stretch on Blackman in just around four minutes, similar to the Montreal screwjob finish. Blackman goes and grabs the timekeeper, Mark Eaton, and threw him. Austin clothesline dude attacked McMahon, but dude saved McMahon. And Austin hit stunners on the Stooges, Jerry Briscoe and Pat Patterson, as they're trying to block him from getting to Vince. And they end the show with Ross asking, is Vince going to screw Austin out of the title Sunday? So you guys are obviously trying to play off the Montreal screw job here. Did Owen have any sort of opinion about all this? Not at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, you know, there were times that Owen would suggest elements of that for his matches and things with Vince and wanted to do it, but didn't have a problem with it at all. He knew it was a work. The, you know, the Montreal screw job. It's funny. Brett made the Montreal screw job be as significant as it is all these years later. Because he, he always has, has talked about it and, and kept it alive. I never really looked at it as, as being that significant, but obviously it is because it's a turning point in the business. It's a time frame. But the act itself, I don't know. I just never got it. Uh, Nitro gets 5.1. Raw gets a 4.4. Let's get to uh, Unforgiven 98. As we mentioned, April 26th, Greensboro. Why are you having the pay-per-view here in a WCW stronghold? I mean, obviously you sold out. It does great business, but is this just a way to sort of, uh, tinkle, tinkle, piss, piss on WCW? 
No, absolutely not. We were doing good business all over the place. It fit in the touring schedule and Vince felt, okay, it fits in the tour. Let's go there. And we hadn't been to Greensboro. I don't think that we had ever done a pay-per-view in Greensboro before. Um, we'd done TV, but this was, I think the first time, you know, doing a, a big show there and why not? It worked and it sold out and did great business. Well, no doubt. And that's what we're here for. We're finally here at the pay-per-view. Uh, I think we mentioned that the uh, venue held around 15,000 until a renovation in the early nineties. I thought we touched on this in an old episode, but maybe it was with Tony. It reopened in 94 and now it's holding 23,000. It's a big building and they sell it out, man. 21,427 are there. It breaks the old Greensboro record of 19,000. And, uh, the paid attendance here is 20,268. Uh, $341,270 is what they draw. It's, it's just shy of the Starcade 86 record of 380,000, but merchandise shatters everything. 165 grand. You gotta be really impressed with those numbers, especially in a big building like this in this area, right? Absolutely, man. That's great. But it was a sign of the times. The, the, the Austin 316 shirts were flying off shelves. It was, you know, now it was all about being sprinkled with uh, stone cold dust. So it, it was a good time and everything was really selling and merchandise. They were, we had cool merchandise and it was catching on. Let's get to the matches. First up, we've got Farouk and Ken Shamrock teaming with Steve Blackman. They're going to beat D'Lo Brown, Mark Henry and Rocky Maivia in 13 minutes and seven seconds. Uh, Meltzer would say that Shamrock was basically a spectator due to torn ligaments in his foot, which were diagnosed this past week. And it all happened at the angle on uh, 413, which we covered in our archives. This forced Blackman to sort of do all the heavy lifting here, since Farouk was really just there for two spots where Rocky's would, where Rocky would tag in while he's down and get some heat on him. And then the big finish where he'd pin Rocky to set up the intercontinental title program they're going to be angling for. Um, overall Meltzer didn't hate it. The, the finish comes after a hot tag with a fresh Farouk working over Rocky. Rocky uses a DDT for a near fall, but then Farouk gets the pin using what Meltzer would call a sloppy dominator. And he only gives the match half a star, not my favorite opening match. And you got a lot of talent in there. Just felt like a miss. What'd you think? Well, I actually thought it wasn't really that bad with everybody. It was about telling one story and that story was rock and Farouk. And they told that story. Well, uh, I would use a different adjective on the dominator. It was a scary dominator because it looked like it almost took rocks head off and could have really screwed up his neck, but the story, man, it was clear and it was told well. So again, it's, it's not a bunch of uh, flip flops and flies and holds and moves that I can't pronounce, but it was a very good story and a good way to start the night. Next up, we've got stone cold coming out to do a promo, which feels sort of out of place here at the time, but it's really an angle where he brings the timekeeper Mark Eaton into the ring and says, if he rings the bell, like he did at survivor series, he's going to beat the hell out of him all over the building. This is sort of fun because this is a little bit of a limelight for somebody who's been with the company a long time and just recently departed the company, uh, in the, I guess the last two or three years. What can you tell us about Mark here on camera? Mark was an original ring crew guy and Mark ended up managing 
all of the ring crew folks. He was a timekeeper a long time. He was also a referee. Um, lives in, I believe he lives in upstate New York somewhere, but a wonderful guy. And just, he was a lifer for a long time. Started out when he was a, a kid in Gorilla Monsoon and Joey Morella and all them kind of had him a part of that crew with Mike Kyoto. And you could count on Mark for just about anything that you ever needed. If, if something needed to get fixed or something needed to be done, Mark Eaton could always get it done. So he was a good go-getter and he was our timekeeper, our cue giver and the communication at ringside long before we had the earpieces for the referees. It all went through Mark Eaton. Hunter Hearst Helmsley retains the European title, pinning Owen Hart for the 900th time in 12 minutes and 23 seconds. The two brawls brawled outside in the aisle before the match ever gets started. And eventually China's put in a cage and then hung above the ring. And then later to the side of the ring, Meltzer would say it was solid, but not great. And it had a concurrent storyline where China's trying to play games upstairs. She's trying to use a nail file, but drops it in the ring. It's never actually used though. Then she uses some superhuman strength to pry apart the bars still too far off the ground to jump out. So she climbs out, teases the big jump and is hanging upside down as the guys were sort of doing some rest holds. She's teasing, jumping and Hart was distracted, allowing Helmsley to gain an advantage. And then Helmsley wound up tied upside down on the ropes while China was hanging off the cage. At this point, Jesse James lowers the cage to allow China to escape. That distracts Owen again, and out comes Sergeant Slaughter to keep China at bay while Hart had Helmsley pinned once again. But this time, X-Pac runs out and clocks Owen with a fire extinguisher for the pin. Good match, bad finish. Straight from the Observer, he gave it two and three-quarter stars. What'd you think? I thought it was a damn good match, and I thought it was a good finish to continue their story. And the story was one of Owen just being frustrated. He had Hunter beat all these things without DX and without having all of these other instruments at Hunter's disposal with DX that Owen can beat him. And Owen had him beat. We showed that in the match, and then Hunter still gets the victory because of all the outside interference, and and Hunter can't beat Owen on his own. That's the story we were t- telling, and and it, shit, I thought they did a great job telling that story. Um, next up, we've got the Midnight Express beating uh, the Rock. Not in Cornette. Fuck you. See, we can say fuck on here. What do you mean? Well, your little your little sounds. It's okay. Well, Go God ahead. damn it. it! Hunter Hearst Townsley beat Owen Hart nine hundred fucking times. In he didn't beat era. him nine hundred times. They didn't even wrestle nine hundred times. Well, if, if, if he would have, he'd have won nine hundred if they did. It's just ridiculous. No, it's not ridiculous. And if it was anybody else, you wouldn't mind. But it's not. It's always this motherfucker. So what? Midnight Express beat the Rock and Roll Express in seven minutes and 20 seconds to retain the NWA tag titles. Um, This is sort of fun because it's in Greensboro. And I know in theory, you're like, what the fuck is this doing here? But it's in Greensboro and uh, they get a baby face reaction. But once the match starts, well... Meltzer would write it was treated as a popcorn match. They did a bunch of 80 spots where the midnights would bump into each other and there's nothing wrong with the execution other than it was a step slow and nobody cared. And it came off like an old timers match. And that's not going to play well with today's fans. Meltzer would write Jim Cornette did a routine where he would challenge the referee, Tim white to a fight and then back down. And Ross said this was the third incarnation of the midnights, but actually it's the fourth and he lists exactly why. 
He would write that uh, Morton is nothing compared to what he once was, but that's almost passable. But Gibson can't play the role anymore, except on small town shows where he can be a nostalgia act. They do the double drop kick on Bart, but Cornette runs in for the save and winds up dropping an elbow on Bart. Uh, Gibson has Bart pinned with a rolling reverse cradle, but Holly delivering a bulldog on Gibson put Bart on top of him for the pin and it's over one star. And Russo sort of said they're only doing any of this silly shit to make Cornette happy, but Vince allegedly hated it. What'd you think of this match? Uh, Vince McMahon hated it or Vince Russo hated it. McMahon. Well, it wasn't, it just wasn't that good. And you're playing on a nostalgia act with the rock and roll express. They weren't, you know, the rock and roll express at this point from 10 years earlier. So it was a tough sell. And I don't care if you're in Greensboro or you're in Los Angeles, California, a good match is a good match. And people are either interested or not. They weren't interested in this angle. They weren't interested in the Rock and Roll Express, and you're still playing to WWE audience who didn't care about the NWA and didn't care about the Rock and Roll Express. We were trying to make them care about the NWA for the story and the angle, and they didn't. It was just a tough sell because we were using nostalgia acts, and they weren't getting over. So it it was not a great match, but it was the best that they could do. Well, you know, it's kind of cool that we got to see, you know, these guys maybe one last time, but I understand why it didn't last. Now, something I did wish lasted a little longer, uh, Luna beat Sable in two minutes and 35 seconds of what Dave called the stripper match. He would write Sable got a huge pop coming out, causing Ross to say, you'd think Ric Flair walked out. With Sable injured and not wanting to expose that her WrestleMania stuff was a series of carefully designed spots, it was the men who carried the match. It was kept short. They did some ripping at close until Luna scored the first major blow, ripping the bottom of Sable's dress off, so we got to see her panties. And then Mark Marrow showed up and began arguing with Sable, allowing Luna to come from behind and rip the rest of her dress off, leaving her in her bra and ending the match. Without the ridiculous boob job, Sable has a phenomenal body for her age, but with it, she looks like just another aging low rent stripper, but through the magic of being on a high profile television show, she is a star. Sable ended up power bombing Luna again and ripping her dress off. And the two wound up under the ring. Sable then came out holding Luna's bra and panties, giving the illusion she was naked under the ring. Goldust gave her his robe and she left in that which is the old Southern wrestling trick and how to get out of stripper matches. Obviously this wasn't a wrestling match, but it delivered what was advertised half a star as a kid. This was five stars. My friend. Well, Jerry Lawler had the line of the night. JR, you know, panties aren't the greatest thing in the world, but they're next to it. But I'm bump. How great is that? <laughs> um, no, it wasn't a five-star match. It was what it was. It was a bra and panty match. It was an evening gown match. You strip them down to their underwear. We gave people what we advertised and what they wanted to see. And the majority of that audience being male and young, and that's what they wanted to see, and that's what we gave them. One's supposed to be a five-star match, Dave, and I'm sorry that it upsets Dave Meltzer to see beautiful women in showing their bodies off. I'm sorry. It really does come off 
poorly that Dave in hindsight would just shit all over Sable and Goldust, like for her age, aging, low rent stripper, blah, blah, blah. It's like, damn. I thought she was beautiful. And she was also one of the most over acts in the company anywhere in the world, in any company at the time. Well, yeah, it's clearly that's the case. And let's talk about JR's comment here because she gets such a pop that he mentions another wrestler for a rival promotion. You'd think Rick Flair walked out at the time. Of course, Rick is having his own problems in WCW and there's a famous story that he was almost on this pay-per-view in the crowd. What can you tell us about that? Well, this is the famous story where we were talking about having a, whether it was a world champion wrestler or something along those lines and having Rick and Reed seated in the front row, Reed being Rick's youngest son, who was a world champion amateur wrestler. He was a tremendous amateur wrestler. Uh, Rick not say anything, but we go and interview Reed. Uh, we didn't do it because of all the issues with WCW and the legal things and, and that uh, could be misconstrued. But we definitely talked about it, and it was one of those rumor mill buzzworthy moments that probably a lot of people thinking that we were in Greensboro and Rick's discontent with WCW at the time that this could happen. What if? And probably added to the whole suspense of the night. Well, it's, uh, it's fun to think about what if for sure. Uh, but what happened next was Vince McMahon who comes out for an interview and says the very idea is that he would, uh, that he would screw a wrestler is beneath his dignity. He mentioned having grown up in Pinehurst, North Carolina and built up to the big line of saying that he hoped stone cold wouldn't screw stone cold, which according to Meltzer got no pop. This is sort of a different time where we've got guys doing promos in the middle of the pay-per-view, but it's clearly working because it furthers a storyline here where two guys really can't touch yet, right? Well, Vince was trying, what he was trying to create was he was trying to create the same atmosphere that we had on television and you're watching Monday night raw at the time. And you're seeing guys come out and cut a lot of promos in front of the audience, but yet on pay-per-views, all you're getting is matches. So Vince wanted to create more drama in front of the live audience. By doing that, we did more live interviews in front of the audience and tried to recreate the atmosphere of a live television show as well. So that was why we were trying a lot of this stuff out. And I want to say this is probably the first time that we rolled a lot of this out and and had the storylines in the pay-per-view that carried all the way throughout. The new age outlaws would retain the tag titles, beating LOD 2000 in 12 minutes and 13 seconds. Uh, the outlaws claimed that Dean Smith, the legendary basketball coach was going to be in their corner. I came out with a blow up doll. They called Dean Smith and Melzer would write that didn't get the heat. You'd think he would say the match was a typical LOD match where animal was decent, but the stuff with Hawk would range from bad to embarrassing overall, not a great match. Um, I guess we should mention here, uh, the finish saw Hawk deliver a German suplex on road dog, but the referee Jack Doan only looked at Hawk's shoulders while counting three, not saying that dog shoulders were also on the mat and they tease it like it was a title change in Greensboro, by the way, for the road warriors until the ring announcer said that the outlaws had retained the title. LOD then did the doomsday device on the referee who took probably the best bump thus far on the show and did a stretcher job. 
quote, I wonder if someone with a calculator can figure out how many times the LOD has been involved in finishes similar to this in this part of the country, three quarters of a star, you know, we're one month away from the battle Royal win or WrestleMania it was supposed to be the big debut of the LOD 2000 gimmick, but it feels like even a month later here, the blooms off the rose. Is it not? The blooms off the rose and much as I hate to say it, it, it was sad. It was the it was the worst match on the on the card, and it was just sad. The two teams had no chemistry; they did not gel at all. Espe- oh my god! Especially Billy and Hawk. It was it was a train wreck. And try as as they did, it just the match itself didn't work. Uh, the story didn't work, and the finish was god awful. Even if they showed replays of a, of an illogical finish that I didn't get it. I, I mean, I just didn't get it at all. Just shitty refereeing is all it is. Well, we got shitty referees here. Jack Doan uh, counting down hawk shoulders when you clearly uh, it just none of it made sense to me, and it and it made even less sense all these years later. <sighs> Jeff Jarrett sang with the country music group, Sawyer Brown. Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Meltzer would write, as many know, Mark Miller, the lead singer of the group, went to high school with Ron and Don Harris, and they've remained friends ever since that time. Jarrett had practiced with them for a while. And as a singer did a good job. It's funny that for all his actual talent, even after this, when he showed up to his huge ring entrance, the next night on raw, nobody cared. What'd you think of this, uh, Sawyer Brown moment? Well, the entire Sawyer Brown stuff was great. They did a concert for us earlier in the day and the biggest thing that happened earlier in the day was everybody's gathered around listening to Sawyer Brown. Jerry Briscoe is kind of at the barricade and everybody's yay. Sawyer Brown type thing, applauding him. And John Layfield came up and got Jerry Briscoe trapped in between the, the guardrail and took Jerry down and then ran like crazy for fear that Jerry would actually catch him. But Briscoe was hot and uh, there's a famous story where he got his comeuppance later on, and that's where the shirt, tap out like you mean it, pussy, comes from, which you can get over at BrucePritchard.com. But that all started on this night at the Sawyer Brown concert when Bradshaw actually took Jerry Briscoe down. And Jerry Briscoe listens to this podcast, and he's going to kill me next time that he sees me talking about it. But we obviously all of the stuff was lip-synced, and when you go back and watch it, they did a pretty good job of syncing up there, but, uh, it was what it was. After one song turns into an angle, of course, Steve Blackman attacks him, but Tennessee Lee clocks Blackman, not with his jump rope, but with a guitar from behind and Jared then put Blackman in the figure four while the crowd loudly started the, we want flair chance. What'd you think of this? It was. It was what it was is about all you can say about that. And the audience, the live audience there, they actually liked the Sawyer Brown stuff. 
And that part of it, that performance and that part of it, I thought was good. Um, you got two guys kind of in the middle, not doing a whole lot with them and trying to do something to create interest with Blackman and Jeff. That's what we were trying to do. Just trying to get somewhere with what we had. Man, I have no idea what we have next. I mean, I don't know how we're going to talk about this. It's something I've wanted to talk about for a long time. I'm glad it finally won the poll. It's just silliness with the capital S the undertaker beat Kane in an inferno match in about 16 minutes. Meltzer would write while this wasn't the first ring surrounded by fire match. It differed from the previous ones in that they put cloth on the ropes and used gasoline to start the flames making those matches considerably more dangerous, but this was held in an indoor building and the special effects in those matches were primitive by comparison. Again, with the with the exception of one spectacular dive out of the ring by undertaker, this wasn't much of a wrestling match, but it was an interesting spectacle to watch two guys, not doing much of anything in a ring surrounded by flames. The fan reacted, the fans reacted more to the flames going up. Then to the moves in the match. After a choke slam, Kane tried to tombstone Undertaker but slipped away from it. Undertaker came back with a choke slam and sat up from it. And they did the exact same double high kick spot that Giant Nash did a week prior on pay per view. They're all over the place here until eventually Undertaker climbs up and uses a superplex uh, and throws Kane over the top rope. And at this point, Kane goes to walk towards the dressing room, but Vader returns and brawls with Kane back to the ring area. And then Undertaker does this running dive over the top, which is really impressive. And then Paul Bear is in to hit the Undertaker with a chair, but of course he no sells it. And then he clocks chain, he clocks uh, Kane with the chair. And um, there's this weird spot where Kane then has sort of been knocked down to where he's laying with his arm under the ring. And this gave the special effects people a chance to sort of wrap his arm up with this weird protective sleeve while the crowd is distracted by the undertaker fighting with Paul bear. And, um, they even do like a drum over bears head and hit him with a mic stand and bears got color here. When he gets back to the ring, Kane's now set up for the stunt. An undertaker kicks Kane into the flames and he runs to the back with his fucking arm on fire. What'd you think here, Bruce? Two and three quarter stars. There's so much to talk about. Oh yeah. I need you to make any of this make sense for me. I'm struggling. Well, first of all, fuck Dave Meltzer and his condescending comments. You know, he talks about these chicken shit matches that they had in Puerto Rico and in Japan where they wrapped the ropes and they set the ropes on fire. Let's talk about how great those matches were, which were some of the worst pieces of shit I've ever seen in my life (laughs) because they were so fucking bad where all they did was hold each other's heads and try to bring them to the fire. They were worse than God awful, but I guess because they're held in an outdoor stadium in Kawasaki, Japan, that they're the greatest fucking thing ever. Oh my God. But they're the drizzling shits and having been there and witnessed those live, it's some of the worst shit I've ever seen in my life. And, um, to even compare this match to those is, is sad and, and just pretty much tells you kind of 
where he's at and his just jaded comments go up my ass sideways and it, it drives me fucking insane. I thought the story again, it's about two brothers. It's all about Kane and Kane setting things on fire. The story that we told, he was disfigured in this horrible fire that all this time he thought his brother had set and, and they, everything about the relationship is etched in fire and Kane, that's so much a part of his persona. He wants his brother to feel the heat that he felt in that house when he was burned and disfigured the way that he was. There's a story to it. Okay. That's that made sense. And yes, it did make sense. Surround them in fire. Um, the match itself was a good match. The story is you're talking about being surrounded by fire. You can't do spots on the ropes and do these different things. The whole object is to set your opponent on fire again. Hey, look folks, that's a little far. Okay. I'm with you there. Okay. We're, we're doing this now, man. I'm, I'm with you there on that one. However, the absurdity of the story and the absurdity of the ring surrounded by fire it makes sense. Don't apply logic to an illogical situation here, folks. It's entertainment. The The match itself, I, I thought that they told a good story working towards it and getting outside and doing everything that they did. I thought they did a really good job. And adding to that, because we got there the night before, nobody really knew what the hell to expect with this ring surrounded by fire. We had the special effects people build this and, and they put it all together, but we had to see it beforehand to really understand what the hell are we going to do with it? How do we get to the finish? I don't know that a whole lot of thought was given to the finish and how you get there until a couple of days before, you know, we had talked to special effects people. We had talked to, experts in this field of setting people on fire. Um, and we knew that it could be done. It was just, how do we get there? And you're doing it on a live stage where you don't have curtains to be drawn and you don't have uh, a point where you can say, okay, cut, bring a stunt man in and let him do it. And no, we had to do it with a guy who's an athlete who's sweaty in real world time and just he's not a trained stuntman and we couldn't switch someone out to do it. You had to do it with him. You had to do it with Ken Kane. You had to do it where you're surrounded by people on four sides. So there's a lot of challenges. And, and that's why when people criticize it, I'm like, fuck you, you try and do it. You try and pull this off with the same parameters and the same limitations that we had to try and pull this thing off. Bruce, I, I think you're missing the point where everybody no. thinks it's ridiculous. Like it's not that you, no. you didn't pull it off. It's why did you fucking do it? Well, because uh, their whole relationship was built on fire and that Kane was disfigured by a fire that was started by undertaker. He's going to make him, he's going to make his brother feel that same pain and set him on fire. Well, let me ask you this though. Why didn't y'all have like a rape match for when triple H raped Katie Vick? I mean, you could have had a rape match. Triple H didn't rape Katie Vick. That was Kane allegedly. <laughs> Pay attention. Why didn't you have a corpse on Pay a pole? Pay attention, damn it. Why didn't you have a corpse on a pole match? 
We didn't have a corpse on a pole. That's why this was, this was a brother trying to make his brother feel his pain. Listen, I get it in storyline. I'm just saying, doesn't it feel like in hindsight, doesn't this feel like really unnecessarily dangerous for the fans, for the performers, for everybody? Like, is there no, anything it was safe for everybody, but yes, it does feel dangerous as fuck. It just sure feels, it, was. it feels unnecessary. Well, goddamn, un- unnecessary is a barbed wire. Uh, a barbed wire match is unnecessary, and that's more dangerous than this was. You can gimmick barbed wire. How do you gimmick fire besides putting a sleeve on a motherfucker? You don't get close to the flame. You don't get close to the barbed wire. What's the difference? I don't know. This was like his one one notch, like below the extremely strange wrestling thing from the mid nineties where they did like an no, AIDS no, not even now something stupid. No, you're comparing the shit to the shit that Meltzer was talking about. This was completely different and it was safe and it was controlled. Now the stuff that they did in Japan with the bombs and the lighting, the ropes on fire, absolutely crazy and stupid and the shits, but this happened under Vince's watch. So this is, this is good. No, this was no, this happened with trained experts that were controlling everything. So yes, I didn't realize it was that. different. It was safe. Otherwise, dude, there's not a fire marshal in the world that would have approved it <laughs> if it was unsafe. Yeah. But you, you've told us before you just pay off the fucking fire marshal. I'm not. No, 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 no. I've never ever, 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 ever said that. Oh, I'm sorry. You you'd take a walk. Nope. Fire marshal was there. The fire marshal approved it. The fire marshal was there the night before, and we had a team of experts and stunt people and experts that do this that were there every single step of the way. And I bet that it fire was complete. Mar- it was completely safe. It was designed to look extremely dangerous. That's the beauty of it. Did the fire it marshal look en- dangerous? Did the fire marshal enjoy Boca Raton? I don't know. The fire marshal was there. The fire marshal enjoyed the match. And love the fact that how safely we pulled it off. <laughs> I love that you guys have open flames near fans. It's so safe. I oh, love but it. But again, we had we had people on every single corner. We had it covered nine ways from Sunday. Just because you didn't see it and it looked dangerous, that's the illusion we're trying to create. Here's what I want. It was extremely dangerous. We had we had people under the ring with fire extinguishers. We had everything nine ways from Sunday. If something were to happen, it would have been taken care of immediately. Yes, it was dangerous. That was the illusion was to create danger. It's no different than David Copperfield trying to create an illusion of danger. That's what we did. It was safe. Um Describe the scene to us when you're sitting around and Vince Russo pitches. What if, well, I, it, it might've been from my fucked up head as far as kind of in telling the whole undertaker Kane story where we got to. And I think Russo kind of took it to, to this point, but yeah, it might've been my suggestion of different things you could do. And Vince McMahon, that's why I always say you got to be careful what you suggest sometimes because by God, next thing, you know, it's going to actually happen. And then you, a lot of times we would schedule things, book things, and then try and figure it out after the fact. And that's kind of where we were here. We did, and we figured it out and it was, it was 100% safe. Um, look dangerous, look dangerous as hell, but it, it was safe. And I thought it told, you know, a, a good story. 
of two brothers that hated each other and one brother wanting to feel his pain. Now, I will it, it made me it made me think of of a story that you will chuckle at because years later, do you remember the time that we set JR in fire on fire? Kane set JR on fire in the office? Yes. Okay. So we had brought in and it was the same fire guy. Okay. But it was a different stunt coordinator and the stunt coordinator is, is trying to take control of everything. And the fire guy is, is very meticulous and he, he has to have everything just right when you're doing all this shit, but he allowed the stunt coordinator to kind of be in charge of some of the safety elements, if you will. And we are in a, we're in a room, which is the TV office. We have cameras, a lot of equipment, a lot of different things. And the stunt man is showing how long he can stay on fire before we have to put him out. And we're shooting this so we can see, okay, how long do we have and cut fire extinguishers type thing. So we rehearse it. And they put gel on all over his back so he will catch fire easily. So he catches fire. We shoot it. He does the, the safety thing where he, they actually tap. And then the safety people come in with fire extinguishers. Well, the safety guy comes in with a fire extinguisher, puts him out. And then he turns to Vince. Goes, hey, Vince, how'd you like it? Was that good? Was that good? Did you like it? Was that good? And the, the guy that's laying down on the ground, he reignited. Like they didn't get all the fire out and he's on fire and he's grabbing the safety guy by the leg and tapping and pulling and telling him, Hey, Hey, Hey. And he's the safety guy is just shrugging him off and going, Hang on, man. I'm talking to Vince. I'm talking to Vince. He's like, Hey, Hey, get me, get me. He goes, hang on. I'm talking to Vince. And the flames are like four feet high. And I was like, hey, dumbass, he's on fire. <laughs> Put him out. Turn around and goes, hey, what happened? That was our safety guy. Um, and that, that one was a little bit kabuki-ish. So. But he didn't do this one. The fire guy did this one and was extremely safe. Setting JR on fire wasn't safe, but, but this was. How did Undertaker and Kane feel about this? Uh, You know they were fine once they got there and figured out how it was all being done, but working inside the ring, it was hot as shit. <laughs> You're surrounded by fire and they, it was hot as shit, but they, they knew what they had to do and, uh, took precautions that weren't in there for a long time by design. And it was undertaker's idea to do the big leap after out after, uh, Vader and Kane came out, but they were cool with it. You know, at first they're like, okay, when they first heard about it, okay, how the fuck do we get out of this? Like, oh, we'll set Kane on fire. Don't worry about it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, who's in charge of raising the flames? Uh, Jerry Briscoe. Well, there was a guy there. Um, there was that, there was actually, if you go back and when you watch the match, you'll see the guy sitting next to Jerry Briscoe. When Paul Bearer goes over and is giving Briscoe shit, that guy is the guy that he was a stunt coordinator. Um, he was there that actually raised the flames, but Jerry Briscoe was there telling him when to hit the high flames on spots and everything. 
And that was actually a Briscoe idea that we came up with the night before when they were in the ring and, and Jerry was like, okay, what can this do? And, and we did the flames and, oh, he came back. What if on these big bumps, the flames come up and that was a, that was a Jerry Briscoe deal. Um, when did these guys sort of walk through the match? I mean, is it that day? They don't really know what this is going to look like till they get there and they have to plan all of this way in advance, right? That day night before okay. we had, we had it all. We had the entire arena set up the night before because we had to run a pipe of natural gas to the ring or propane or whatever the hell it was. But we had to, we had to run a pipe all the way to the ring to, to feed these contraptions that did the fire. How was, um, how was Vince with all of this, this day? God damn. I love it. More flames. Give me more fire. He liked it. He thought it came off. I think everybody was relatively pleased with it. Um, I, I, I thought that this one was the best of the, the two that we did the second time when they caught Kane's leg on fire, didn't like it as much, but, um, it was what it was. Let's talk a little bit about this as a gimmick match. Where do you rank it? So first and last time we ever saw it can't be high. Where is it? No, we did another one. We did a second one. Um, but it was, I, I, I don't know that I would want to book it again. You know, it's kind of hard to top and, and once you've seen it, I think you've seen it. So it's, it's not like a cage match. You want to see two other guys in it. There's only so many people that you can put in a set them on fire match. Okay. You <laughs> know, it makes sense. It's got to make sense. I had totally blocked out the match with MVP. Well, you see, there you go. I think we all did, but I knew there was another one. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about the main event while we're really here. Dude love gets a win over Steve Austin by DQ. So Austin retains, they go nearly 19 minutes and uh, Meltzer man is heaping the praise on. He really liked this. He gave it four stars. He says an incredible performance of bump taking by dude love carried this. And Austin's timing was good as well. The highlight was dude selling of some great clotheslines in the ring and crazy bumps out of it. They brawled all over the place, including on the musical stage. Dude took a hip toss off the stage to the floor and Austin basically kicked him back into the ring. Dude took a hard clothesline bump on the floor and took a throat drop on the guardrail guardrail and a really hard bump into the steps. Eventually, of course, Patterson and the Stooges come out and they gave McMahon a chair to sit at and McMahon looked at the timekeeper as if to execute the plan. And when Austin sees him, he explodes. And Austin attacks Dude Love, including wrapping his knee around the post. But when he goes for a pile driver on the floor, Dude reverses it and whips him into the guardrail. Eventually, McMahon taunts Austin, allowing Dude to attack Austin from behind and snaps his neck on the top rope. They're all over the place, brawling on the floor, spots on the guardrail. I mean, everything you can do here, they're doing, including teasing the spot they did on TV with Blackman where dude has an abdominal stretch on Austin and McMahon is making eye contact with the bell ringer, but he pauses in theory, afraid of Austin. So before McMahon can get the bell to ring, Austin reverses the move, which is kind of cool. Uh, no, 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 he's got him. He's got him. He's got him. Oh, no. 
what Vince was saying inside. Dude clotheslines the ref, uses the mandible claw. Austin punches his way out. Dude cuts him off with a low blow. More of the claw. Backdrop over the top rope onto the floor. Swings a chair at him. And McMahon actually takes the hard shot. And in the ring, Austin got away from the T's sweet shin music and hit the stunner. But there's no ref. So he just counts the one, two, three for himself. And even though there's no ref, Austin's music plays to signify the end. And they spent several minutes on the unconscious McMahon to end the television show, but it's an official announcement that Austin was disqualified for hitting a WWF official. So while there's a lot of good of act, good action here, crazy bumps. I mean, they're really pulling out all the stops. It is sort of a non finish, but Meltzer doesn't hold that against it, giving it four stars. Obviously it sets up our rematch at over the edge. And this is Steve's first pay-per-view title defense. He doesn't get a clean win, but the fans know what really happened. What'd you think of the match? What did Vince think of taking the chair shot? Chat me up. I thought the match was excellent. Uh, it was, I mean, start to finish. I kind of chuckled as I was watching it earlier. And then as you're going through the play by play and all the bumps that Mick was taking and, and chuckling to myself thinking, some of the things that Vince wasn't always in favor of that Cactus Jack did of the few things that Vince had ever seen him do that he was like, ah, I hate those bumps. Those were the things Mick was doing here that were getting him over and that people were going, oh my God. And Mick Foley had actually convinced Vince McMahon that no, it's safe how I take them and, and it's okay. I thought it was spectacular. I really... It's hard. 45 years in the wrestling business, I've seen a lot of wrestling matches. And it's hard to get me to stop, especially a match I've already seen, and just sit there and watch it. This was one of those matches that I was enthralled with. And it was one of those, the audience was into every single thing that Steve did. They were into Mick. They were into every nuance that Vince did. So... You had the perfect storm and you had the perfect story, the perfect audience, almost as if it was a Hollywood movie and you had written all of it laid out perfectly. The audience was into it and they were buying what we were selling. It was good shit. It was good stuff, man. And, um, I guess the thing I've always wanted to know about this, this is really one of the first times we've seen McMahon involved physically. Steve nervous about hitting him with the chair. What are the instructions here? <laughs> God damn it, kid. Just bring it. And Steve has never been afraid to bring it. So Vince told him, bring it. And Steve was bringing it because he was going to lay his stuff in and make it look good. And both guys, that's probably what made everything that they did work because neither one of them were willing to, to sacrifice quality. Um, it was real, you know, look real. Cause it was real. One of the questions I've always had here is, um, was triple H ever considered for this spot? I asked just because Austin had beat Michaels the month before. And as far as the casual fan knew, he sort of ran Michaels out of the WWF. Doesn't it logically make sense that he would pick up where he left off with triple H before pivoting? Why was that sort of held off till later? Because Vince wanted new. He wanted a completely fresh, 
new start for Steve. He had a new champion. He wanted a new opponent. He wanted everything new. He didn't want to kind of rely. He didn't want people to think, okay, now you've got Triple H and DX. When's Sean coming back? He wanted to forget about that. He needed Steve to get over now. Steve had slayed the one dragon to become champion. Now it's time for Steve to start anew and start new angles and start new rivalries. Well, let's talk about uh, what Mick thought. Mick wrote, the pay-per-view match was a tremendous success, both artistically and financially. I actually had a great deal of doubt going into this match as I wasn't quite sure how to keep the dude in character while at the same time making him seem like a threat to the Federation champion. I even dyed my hair a little to try to alter the dude's persona. I later found out that even the office had reservations about this matchup. What's he mean by that, Bruce? I don't know because we really didn't have reservations about it. We, we liked Mick and let me, let me clarify this. We liked Mick Foley with all of his personas. And we felt that dude love being the antithesis to stone cold, Steve Austin, and just being the yin to his yang was the right one to start off with. And I don't know where he gets that from because for at least my knowledge, man, we were behind the dude love character and we were behind Mick in this issue with Steve because we felt that he was going to get the best out of him. We felt Steve was going to get the best out of Mick and vice versa. Bruce, let's get some questions out of the way. Are you ready? Come on, you going to rapid fire him, baby? I am, and stay tuned till the end because I'm going to give you a rundown on basically the rest of the fucking year because I've got all the shows mapped out for the most part. Oh Here we my go. God. Mike wants to know how many superstars stood around the gorilla position monitor during the Sable Luna evening gown match. Woo. Uh, they were probably around the monitor in the back. It was a sellout at the monitor, as the boys would say. Scott O'Brien says, according to uh, Jim Cornette, Ric Flair was actually in his car circling the arena this night, debating whether or not he should come inside and sit in the front row. You co-sign that? I don't know if he was circling the arena, but there was definitely talk about Rick coming in. Law GT. There was communication, put it that way. Law GT wants to know, what were Vince McMahon and Jim Cornette's thoughts on the new Midnight versus Rock and Roll Express match? This is the greatest thing ever. I don't know why the fuck is not going on last. If Bobby and Dennis were here, it would. Jake wants to know, how much did you and or Vince bribe the fire marshal this night? That's just fucked up. Here's a question. What'd you think about the adult concept matches? And he of course is listing the Inferno match, hell in a cell, first blood. Uh, this comes from Kenny. Well, we were in competition and we were changing the way that we were doing business. We were making our product edgier, more adult oriented, and it was a conscious effort to change. I was in favor of it. Uh, Ryan wants to know this was released on DVD as was rock bottom back in the day. Why didn't the WWE release other pre DVD era pay-per-views like the UK, they got the majority of the in your house and other pay-per-views on DVD in the early two thousands, but we didn't here in America. I have no idea. I thought they were all released on DVD. I, I really don't know what you're talking about because I think they were all released. They weren't Colby wants to know which face of Foley was Bruce's favorite. Mick, oh, okay. uh, I, I liked Mick Foley as Mick Foley, uh, as far as the faces of Foley, but dude love was my personal favorite. As far as entertainment goes, 
Jimmy wants to know why weren't there more WWF slash E shows in the Carolinas in this era? Why weren't there more? I, I, I don't understand the question. He wanted you to come to the Carolinas more often. Why didn't you? Well, because we didn't always draw in the Carolinas and we went where we drew. Jimmy wants to know what did Jim Cornette think of the Inferno match? It's fucking bullshit. They should have a goddamn check over the ring for $5,000. Did uh, Tommy wants to know, did fans in the front row have to sign waivers? No, they did not. Alfred they were perfectly safe. Uh, Ricky wants to know how did Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson get along with the boys? Excellent. You know, the, the boys get along and Ricky and Robert old timers, man. And, and I think that a lot of the guys for the younger talent, seeing Ricky and Robert there was a big thrill because they were mega, mega stars. Stuart wants to know, was the dude love character really a long-term prospect is part of the three faces of Foley? Yes, it, it really was. Jay wants to know, did anyone ever try Ken Shamrock backstage? Nobody in their right mind. No. Joshua wants to know what was the nature of the NWA relationship in 98? Trying to give a little bit of a rub to the NWA and try and create the illusion of some outside competition invading into the WWE. Justin wants to know how would Jerry Jarrett pitch an Inferno match? Well, you know, first you get, well, you know, the fire and you, well, you know, and then you take the match and you know, you light it and they, well, you know, you set them on fire. Huh? What about Pat Patterson? You take the Adapas and you put the fire and you say, fuck you. You're on fire. You're like a douchebag. Chris Ford wants to know by 1998, the WWF had a pretty stacked roster. It was an underrated talent who could have done more if the time was right. You know, a guy that I always thought could have done uh, a whole hell of a lot more was Steve Blackman. I thought he was just unique and different enough that he could have crossed over. Uh, Kevin asked a phenomenal question. You're going to get fucked around either way. Who would win in a shoot fight in 98? Steve Austin or Gerald Briscoe? Oh, Gerald Briscoe. Oh, you're going to get blocked on Twitter. He didn't like that. Uh, Zachary wants he to would know, answer the same way. What would it sound like for corny, dusty and or macho man to try to sing dude loves theme song. <laughs> dude love. Yeah. Uh-huh. Dude love. I don't know the words. Dude love motherfucker. <laughs> He's a sexy boy. Cock sucking bite wad. Fuck you. I don't know how we finished from here. So, uh, let me just tell you, Boston, we're coming to you at the end of the year, Phoenix, we're coming to you next year, LA. We're going to see you soon. New York, Winston, Salem. We've been everywhere, man. But next it's Baltimore. Don't miss us. Baltimore, Jimmy's famous seafood, the best crab cakes in the world. Plus raw, a confirmed guest, Bruce and I. Maybe a run in. It's going to be awesome. It's Monday, May 7th. Come watch Raw with us. We're going to do the show right before Raw and then hang out with you. And we're going to be hanging out a lot. I want to run down the upcoming schedule, Bruce. We've got it mapped out. Uh, we are busier than a one armed paper hanger. Of course, 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff is debuting this Monday. Please go out of your way to search for Bischoff in your podcast app, and you'll be able to download it over the weekend or at least get your subscription going again. 
and uh, we'll be back at you on Monday. You can also catch a brand new edition of What Happened When with Tony Schiavone on Monday. We've got our own little Monday Night Wars now. I'm competing with my fucking self here. Maybe I'll win. And on Wednesday, of course, it's something else to wrestle, and that's going to be a pretty fun one. Shawn Michaels, 1995. But let's talk about the podcast for a minute. Can I run through the upcoming schedule here, Bruce? Well, don't give them too much because things could, you know, card is subject to change. All right. Card subject to change, but here's what it looks like right now. Are you ready, Bruce? I'm ready. I'm listening. I can't believe he won the poll. The big boss man is coming to town next week. And I'm excited about this because I just knew the rock was going to win, but he didn't. And neither did earthquake and neither did cold day in hell. So finally we get to tell Ray Trailer's story. I'm looking forward to that. And that is going to be on May the 4th. So may the 4th be with you when we cover the big boss man, but Bruce, we've got a very special episode coming up and that's going to happen on Friday, May 11th. It's finally here. It's episode 100. What else would we cover besides a topic that you'll love Bruce? I love you. Brother love is episode 100 on May 11th. On May 18th, we've got the British Bulldog. Unfortunately, that's the anniversary of his death, but we're going to celebrate his life on May 18th. We've had a lot of requests for what's coming on May 25th, and that's going to be hashtag love to know. So stick around for that one. You're going to have plenty of opportunity to ask questions on June 1st. We're going to go ahead and give you a poll. We're not releasing the poll topics yet because that is subject to change, but we have an idea what might win. On June 8th, we're going to cover King of the Ring 1993, a big moment in company history. Brett wins and Hogan is out. Bad Blood 2003 is coming your way on June 15th. That is going to be a fun show. It's the 15 year anniversary. We've got Triple H and Kevin Nash. We've got Shawn Michaels and Ric Flair. We've got Goldberg and Jericho. We've got Austin and Bischoff. Lots of fun stuff going down on June 15th. On June 22nd, Sable. That's right. We're finally doing the Sable episode on June 29th, the day after the 20 year anniversary of the King of the Ring 1998. This is going to be something you don't want to miss. It is that hell in the cell that made Mick Foley famous forever on July 6th. I can't believe we're finally doing it. Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake is going to get a something to wrestle episode all to himself on July 6th on July 13th. We've got Muhammad Hassan and we picked July 13th because that's the exact anniversary of the controversy that really ended his career. July 20th. We're finally doing the invasion pay-per-view. Lots of people have wanted to know when are you talking about the invasion? How about July 20th? Set your calendars. And last, but certainly not least, what we're going to go over today, July 27th, it's vengeance, 2003, the exact 15 year anniversary. And what a fun one this should be. We've got Vince McMahon taking on Zach Gowan. What a lineup we've got, man. That's going to get you through the end of July. And, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Is there one on the list that sort of sticks out to you more than any of the others? You know, you're going to, you're going to laugh at this, but vengeance 2003 talking about that whole time with piper and hogan and vince and zach gowan it was a lot going on and some a lot of behind the scenes things taking place during that time as crazy as that sounds it's gonna be a juicy one 
I don't think it's that crazy and I'm looking forward to it. I think it's going to be the best run shows we've ever had. And man, am I fired up? Uh, don't miss it. Go ahead and hit the subscribe button right now. Leave us a five-star review. Tell your friends, post it, talk about it on Twitter, brag about it, love on us, and uh, be sure to tag the WWE network. Let them know how much you're enjoying something else to wrestle. If you haven't already pick up a shirt over at BruceBritchard.com, but please come see us in Baltimore. We're excited about this show. It's a rare weekday show for us. And it is a little bit of an experiment. And then if this is fun and it works out, we're going to do a lot more of these and not just make us a weekend attraction. As Bruce likes to say, we'll hang out and watch Raw and SmackDown with you. And, uh, Bruce, unless you've got anything else, I think it's time to get out of here. Well, let's get gone. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, it's Conrad, and we are out of time. We'll see you next Wednesday on the WWE Network for something else to wrestle with. And we're going to be covering Shawn Michaels 1995. If you're going to be missing us in the meantime, don't forget we just posted a bonus show on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash something to wrestle. And it's all about the 1992 Royal Rumble. We'll see you next week right here with the big boss man on something to wrestle with. Conrad Thompson. I'm saying that now. I'm going to try that. Something no, to wrestle with. Pritchard. But you get the you got to do a search. Yeah, but you got the network yeah, but... show. Can I have the fucking podcast? No. What, no. What about Facebook I'm a Live? Selfish, I'm a selfish egotistical maniac. I you should maniac. know that by now. I, what, about, what about Facebook? Can we do Facebook Live with Conrad Thompson? Well, then you do it. I don't want to do it. I'm You're gonna... doing Facebook Live next week. No, I'm not. Yeah, you just said it. No, I got, I got jobs and stuff. Just said it. Well, I'm going to be in Orlando next week at MLW, so don't forget that on BN Network. Oh, yeah. Isn't that tomorrow night? No, that's actually tonight. Tonight? It's tonight on BN Sports. I know. I'm glad Tony Schiavone's on TV and not you. I'm on the network. Yeah, but he's on cable. He's on BN Sports. Yeah, well, I'm I'm beyond cable. Beyond cable? (laughs) I'm streaming now. I'm just trying to get my name on a fucking podcast. See you next week right here. You should do one. I do 90. I know. It's hard to like, get any time with you. What are you doing, Conrad? I'm doing a podcast. With, well, I, but I'm right here. I know. It does feel like I'm cheating on you a little bit. It does a little bit. If I was going to cheat on you, hypothetically, would you rather be with Tony or Eric? God, Eric, because if Tony would get on you, and it would probably stay for a while. It would take a lot of scrubbing to get Tony off. I feel like that's accurate. Well, anyway, we'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With. Conrad Thompson. Who's Pritchard? What the fuck? John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.